Hello and welcome to another episode of Adventures in .NET. I'm Sean Clebo, your host, and with me today we've got a full panel. We've got Caleb Wells. Hey, Caleb. Hey, how are you? Yeah, hey. I think we're doing better than you, but you are damn lucky. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Been in New Orleans, and of course the season isn't so over, so I won't. Yeah. You know, we we've been blessed so far right we've had three three big misses in the last couple of months and i hope to keep it that way <laughs> yeah i do too there looks like there's a number of them out there brewing so. yep yep all right and we also have joel schobert hey joel hey everybody mm -hmm. How's the uh, weather up north in uh, Minnesota? Oh, we're turning into fall weather here, so a lot of 50s and 60s, so it's nice outside if you're exercising, but if you're not, you probably need a jacket. <laughs> <laughs> not bad, all right. And then we have Wailu from Australia. Hey guys, how's, how's, uh, how's it going? Good. Good. How do you feel when people say you're down under? <laughs> <laughs> That's still a bit but I don't get it every day, obviously, because I hang around mostly with Australians. So. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's good to see y'all. Yeah. yeah see All right. And our guest today is Jason Wyman. How are you doing, Jason? Uh, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me here. I really appreciate it. I'm excited to be here. Great. We're excited to have you. Do you ever have trouble just getting into the flow? You find that your tool is great, like Visual Studio, but you could just get more out of it or get some stuff out of your way or have it give you better feedback that you would be able to get into flow easier? Well, let me tell you about Code Rush. Code Rush actually solves this problem for you. So the first thing that it does is it actually gives you a visualizer on the way that the code is set up, and it actually helps you debug stuff in an intuitive way that makes it easy for you to figure out what's going on. This really helps me stay in the flow when I'm trying to write code. Another thing that it does is it has a whole bunch of navigation options that you can get used to. Now, this is something that I figured out with Emacs was something that I really got into. So when I started using Emacs, just the key bindings and, and kind of the natural flow of things made me a much, much more efficient programmer. And the quick navigation in Code Rush is awesome. You should definitely try it out. They have code analysis, so they'll pick out some of the issues maybe for complexity or diagnose some other code issues that'll point out code smells, it'll help you refactor your code. So the code analysis is another thing where I don't have to actually go in and sit down and think, okay, have I made any mistakes in this code? Because it actually highlights them. And finally, it just validates like your code coverage and all of the other things that you're trying to look at and gives you real numbers and real feedback on the quality of your coding and the quality of your tests. So go check out Code Rush. You can get it at devexpress.com slash products slash Code Rush, or just go to devchat.tv slash Code Rush, and it'll send you to the right place. Once again, that's devchat.tv slash Code Rush. I think we're going to be talking about Unity 3D today. Is that right? That's the plan. That's what That's I like to talk about, at least. <laughs> well, well, Unity and C Sharp and game development and all the stuff around it. Cool, cool, cool. We we, we try to go to plan, but, you know, sometimes we, we end up getting sidetracked, you know. But that's all right. I think our audience appreciates that a little bit, that we're not just totally serious. So why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got started into doing development and, and what you do now? Sure. So I probably started like a lot of people as a kid wanting to make games, mostly just because I ran out of games that I could play. So I needed to try to make something for myself. I had two games and couldn't afford to buy a third. I couldn't afford to buy anything. So I tried to make my own games. I had to copy things out of magazines and write a little bit of code here and there. And I always thought like, hey, this would be a really cool thing. Like maybe one day I'll 
make video games. Or maybe one day I'll just be a rich billionaire that lives on a boat. I don't know. Those were both my ideas as a little kid, right? You still working on that? Yeah. The game developer (laughs) ones worked out, right? The billionaire part, not so much. But it's been... um, Since then, I just kind of got in and out of programming a little bit every couple of years until I was in my early 20s. And at that time, I was not really sure what I wanted to do. I kind of knew how to code a little bit. I'd written a couple little mods for games, little cheats and hacks for stuff. Nothing special, nothing impressive, all terrible, terrible code. But I was really into it and liked it. And I found a job that would let me code. So I found a job in a QA department where I could actually write some code and started writing code for server systems at Intel. From there, I found out that I really loved code. I had actually, I skipped, I got a degree in electrical engineering, realized that I didn't like electrical engineering and wasn't ever going to use it. And all I ever used it for was installing car stereos a couple times for myself, right? So I guess, long story short, I realized that software was a whole lot more fun and I could do a lot more and got into writing code at Intel and then switched over to making games, uh, which was again, another total giant accident. I was actually playing a game. I logged into a game that I hadn't played in 10 years, two years. I logged into play EverQuest and got a message from an old friend said, Hey, I heard, you know how to code. I remember that. Would you be interested in coming to work on a game with me? (laughs) I was like, um, all right, we're moving to California. So from there, told my wife and two weeks later, picked up, moved from Washington to California, started a game dev job, making very little money in a very expensive area, but it turned out great in the long run. It's been a, a giant wild ride since then, but it's kind of kind of the start, I guess. So that game that you were working on, is that something that people would be familiar with? That was Vanguard Saga of Heroes. It was a follow-up yeah. to EverQuest, kind of, if you played World of Warcraft, same kind of game, just kind of... I guess, a a post-cursor made by the guys that made a precursor to it. It ended up not being a super successful game, largely because of performance problems and scheduling stuff. There there was a lot of, all of the same reasons that games fail of going overboard and not not delivering on the the key part fast enough and in time making it profitable. But, But it was still a big successful game that had hundreds of thousands of players, made tons of money, made money. It just wasn't a giant, you know, blow away mega hit <laughs> it's still a big multi-million dollar triple a game though cool cool yeah i've never written any serious games but i have written a few bots to play games for me but that's about as close as i've got really games for you yeah you, yeah you right us. <laughs> i remember doing that in ashwin's call i actually wrote some lua scripts that would run overnight and make gold for me while I was sleeping. Yeah. Yep. All right. Yep. Yeah. The game I played was, it had a mining aspect to it. And I wrote a, a bot that would just have a bunch of the little characters log in and then go mining. And every time they got full with, with gold, they go back to town, sell the gold, go back to the mine, back and forth, back, back. So normally this was a pay to win type of game, <laughs> but you know, I didn't want to spend that much money. So I just wrote a program. Well, you you can tell we're programmers when we take a game <laughs> that we're enjoying and like, hey, I think I can can make it so I can make more money in this game for free. Yeah. So I can, I can automate this fun. So I can <laughs> Right. Yeah, I, I used a program called Auto Hockey. I don't know if you're familiar with that. So it was able to read some of the memory 
locations within the game and then also do pixel recognition and things like that, move the characters around and so on and so forth. And they kept on doing bot detection and things like that. And our, my characters would end up getting, you know, put into what they call bot jail and things like that. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I just bot harmonica for them. <laughs> yeah. And the characters were free because it was a free to play game. So I just make another character and have it go mine. So it's like, okay, I don't care if you're going to put my thing in jail. They were very lenient with what you could get away with in Ashton's call. So didn't have any issues. All right, it's so enough, enough that that sidetrack, yeah. I think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I could talk for hours about MMOs. Yeah, yeah. Right? all right. So yeah. uh, Unity 3D, what is it? What's it do for people? Sure, so let me make the jump. So I was working on MMOs, and one day, I worked on that one and a couple other MMOs at Sony afterward. Then one day I got a message right around when the iPhone 1 came out. So this is maybe a couple months after the, the first iPhone, it might have been up to a year. It was before the second iPhone came out. And it was a friend saying, hey, we want to start a mobile game development company. Will you come work with us? <laughs> Will you come do it? And I'm like, um, I don't know. I got a little bit of info. He said, hey, we want to use C Sharp and this engine called Unity. I briefly looked at Unity before, but it was at a time before it was really using C Sharp. It was using this old Boo language. Uh, which is now deprecated and completely gone. So I kind of looked at it and I was like, I don't know, should we dive into this? Like, is this the right thing? I was used to doing C++ for all game development before that. Like, in fact, most people did C++ for game development, but I'd use C Sharp and enterprise stuff and tools. Dove into it and realized that Unity is essentially a game engine, a lot like Unreal, where all, a lot of the hard stuff that you don't really want to do yourself is already done and abstracted away and you really just get to focus on the core of building your game, and you get to do it in C-sharp. It's also what other game engines are like now. All of them have kind of progressed up to just about this point where you're really just writing code on top of the core systems. So you're not having to recreate the rendering systems or worry about how do I render this or how do I make this work on an iPad versus a computer versus an Xbox. It's all the same. You're just setting up code that interacts with these systems to make your game be your game or your app be your app because it doesn't always have to be games. I'd say probably, I don't know the actual percent, but I guess it's at least 10% of people using Unity are doing it for non-game stuff. They're doing interactive experiences or virtual reality things for enterprises or augmented reality for enterprises or just apps where they need to have a lot of visualization that they can't do in a normal environment. And it's really, really easy to do it in Unity and make it cross-platform to go out to just about any mobile device or tablet or anything that people would be using in your organization. Just just actually a quick question about like game engines, I guess. But has that always been the way programming game programming has been done? Like like when you was when you started, did, have you always programmed a game against a game engine or no. So I mean initially obviously a long time ago there were no game engines and everything was handwritten. What kind of happened over time was that a lot of the companies that, that were building these games started to make their things a little bit more reusable as they would build their next game. So they would build a game and then they would build on top of that for the next game. Like version two might be a totally different game, but it's built on top of that same engine. Think of like mm. the Doom engine and Quake engine, things like these. They, they all got kind of built up. And what happened is a lot of companies have built up their own internal engines. So if you look at big AAA companies, a lot of them have their own 
like primary engine that almost everybody in their company uses for most of the games and that all of their tech is around. Recently, though, I'd say in the last 10 to 15 years, that's been changing because Unity came out with a reasonably good pricing model. Unreal initially was like, you know, a million dollars plus just to get started. Uh, now they're obviously down to free and everybody's free and it's become a lot more open. So everybody, I think, is making the switch to game engines. And when they're starting out, almost nobody's building their own game engine anymore. Very, very rare thing to see now, but it used to be really common and you still find a mix every now and then, but most people are using Unity or Unreal for their games. Right. That's a cool way to get started. Go ahead, Wayne. I just said that it sounds like it makes it really accessible to get started these days. Yeah, I was just curious, Jason. So if you use one of those game engines, how close are you then to being able to run on and target multiple platforms for your release? Well, for mobile devices, PC and Mac and all that, Depending on what you do, you just to set up a default project, like you build an Angry Birds or something, you really don't have to do anything as long as you're dealing with touch input for your th- as your default, but that'll work with your mouse too. So you can set it up so that there's really like almost no difference. If you just wanted to play like an app that's showing some visualizations, there's nothing at all. You hit switch platforms, you install whatever SDK the first time that you do it, which you usually do during your Unity install. You just check the platforms that you want. It'll auto-install all the SDKs and all the build stuff for you. You just pick the platform, hit switch, hit build and deploy, and it goes out. Really, really easy on an Android device. It's a little bit harder on an iOS device because you have to either have a Mac or use the automated build system that'll just deploy out to your Mac or deploy out to your device remotely. So you can use their cloud build system if you don't have a Mac and don't want to get one to do that. Or you can just use an old MacBook or a Mac Mini is what a lot of people use too if they need to do this. Everything else, you just go straight out to the platform, unless it's a console where you'll need a dev kit and approval and a, a whole lot more stuff going on there. So I don't need to be a math major to write my own physics engine. It's going to do all that for me. You don't need to even really understand physics. You <laughs> need to understand like what a meter per second is in movement. If you can grasp that, that this is moving at 10 meters per second, you can see how big a meter is on your screen. Other than that, really, there's not much math involved in game development. There's not much physics involved in game development. There is in game engine development. But again, we're building on top of those engines, so we don't have to build that stuff. The math that you do is generally addition, subtraction, division, multiplication. You're like multiplying this by 0.1 or something to slow them down 10% or to 10% of their speed, that kind of thing. You're not really doing much else do i need to know how to draw no you need to find artists or buy art or use free art which is i I use a combination of all three because i'm a terrible artist i make coder art all day long and then i find people who can make better stuff and fix it i really appreciate that as a developer you don't really need to know a lot of math because my degree is actually graphic design so (laughs) you really don't need to know much math at all and to be honest like even to make games you don't have to be like a great programmer to build a good successful game you just have to be able to be willing to put in the energy and the effort and the time and actually make it good and fun a lot of the time it's easy to over-engineer your game and over-engineer the code side and and forget about the fun part. And a lot of time we can have relatively sloppy bad game code and still have it be fun. Not that I'm advocating for sloppy bad game code or anything, but that it doesn't, you're not in a situation where like we're scaling up to a million people and if this code is bad, it's costing the company tons of money, right? It's always running on an independent device in, in a sandbox and you don't have to worry as much about the quality of the code or it being hacked or anything, unless you're into multiplayer games and an online community type thing. 
I guess it, it, I'd say it's easy, <laughs> easier than you would expect. I know a lot of the big games are coming from like really big studios where they have a lot of resources. This move you're talking about where Unity, Unreal, and a lot of them have dropped the price, so a lot of them almost to zero. Has it changed the landscape to we're seeing a lot more independent games or even solo games? Or is there just enough competition out there you can't really do it with a one-person or, or five-person shop? I think that we're seeing quite a few of those smaller teams pop up with games that are relatively popular, both in Unity and Unreal. Just looking at some of the stuff that's been out there now, I think that some of those latest teams of the the games that my kids are playing are all relatively small. I know that like one of the games that kid next to me plays all the time is Unturned, which is built by like a 16-year-old initially by himself. And it's, you know, millions of sales on Steam. It's a huge hit and one of the top games on there. And obviously, I'm sure he's got other people working with him now and it's been years. He's no longer a 16-year-old, but it's the kind of thing where you can definitely get into it and build something cool. You just have to be driven and have a vision of what you want to build. So building the game part isn't nearly as hard as getting the game done. I think it's a lot like most software projects, right? Like figuring out the steps to do it, it's doable. It's coming up with the will and the energy and the effort and the idea to, to do it and then following through. Those small teams, I think, are commonly called indie game development. I think that's really been growing and growing over the years, don't you think? Oh, yeah. It's grown and gotten quite big. It is not super easy to make a lot of money as an indie game developer unless you end up with one of those big hits, though. So a lot of indie game developers also do contract type work where they can make a lot more money while they're building their games until they're released. But indie games in general are getting relatively huge. There's just a lot of them out there. You just got to make something that's cool and fun and interesting. So it's not easy to be the next Flappy Bird? Oh, goodness, no. It's easy to make. That's the thing. It's really easy to make the next Flappy Bird, right? I can teach your kid how to make the next Flappy Bird in an hour. It's getting it to be the popular viral hit. That's the hard part. Right. So, Jason, what led you to YouTube and and your videos to teach people how to use Unity? That's a good question, because it was totally by accident. The YouTube part kind of came later. I started with a blog where I was just writing about, I was writing about little Unity things that I found kind of interesting and a couple little guides, but I was also writing about Octopus Deploy and noting out our web service deployment stuff and how that all worked with AWS. You know, like I was blogging about all kinds of different things. And I found that the Unity things were more fun to write about. And I was having a little bit of, it was all while I was working on enterprise stuff while I started writing these. And I just found that I I was having a blast with them and people were starting to watch them every now and then I'd get like a hundred views in a day of of a blog post. And I just lose my mind. I'm like, I got a hundred views today. Oh, just going around the office, talking to everybody about how exciting that was. And I, I was just having a blast and started growing it and growing it. And then what I realized was that a friend of mine started doing a YouTube channel and he was seeing giant growth right away. And I realized that YouTube and Google are just prioritizing those types of content. And I really hated talking, to be honest. Like before I started doing YouTube stuff and talking on podcasts and doing public speaking, I was a total introvert, hated talking to people, never talked to people. I was like giant silent nerd all the time. Right? Like, And it took a lot to break me out of like going up and talking in front of a group at, a, at an actual meetup. I kind of got like, almost almost bullied into it thankfully <laughs> I, I felt like i thanked the guy who bullied me into it many times but yeah i saw that they were they were doing 
really well on YouTube. And then I found that it was a lot easier to explain things on YouTube because I could go through step by step and show everything that I was doing and explain the things at the same time. So I could say the words of the actions that I was doing, explain why I was doing them and show it instead of trying to type that all out and then have them try to watch an animated GIF of the little piece of the thing that I was doing. I realized that I could get the info across a lot better. It was easier to build and it was just more popular and got out a lot wider. Have you ever wondered if you could be offering a faster, less buggy experience for your customers? I mean, let's face it. The only way you're going to know that is by actually running it on production. So go figure it out, right? You run it on production, but you need something plugged in so that you can find out where those issues are, where it's slowing down, where it's having bugs. You just, you need something like that there. And Raygun is awesome at this. They, they just added the performance monitoring, which is really slick and it works like a breeze. I, I just, I love it. I love it. It's like, it's like you get the ray gun and you zap the bugs. It's anyway, definitely go check it out. It's going to save you a ton of time, a ton of money, a ton of sanity. I mean, let, let's face it. Grepping through logs is no fun and having people not able to tell you that it's too slow because they got sidetracked into Twitter is also not fun. So go check out Raygun. They are definitely going to help you out. There are thousands of customer-centric, customer-focused software companies who use Raygun every day to deliver great experiences for their customers. And if you go to Raygun and use our link, you can get a 14-day free trial. So you can go check that out at adventuresin.net.com slash Raygun. No, I, I get that. I've I've written a few blog posts. I did a few way back when .NET Core first came out, right? And you end up writing five pages to show them how to set up a basic project, right? It's not. It, it becomes very dry, and it's not. It's not as useful as you think it is when you start. Totally agree. That was my experience too. I'd find like pages and pages and pages, and I've barely shown them anything. Right. Cool. So where does somebody go to get started? What should they do? You know, how should they go about it? I would recommend trying by actually building a game, going through a tutorial where you're going step by step and building out an actual simple game, something that's small, that's a simple mobile game. What I usually recommend for people that are getting started is to pick like three mobile games that they think are fun, but are super simple, and then cut those out and pick like three simpler ones because they need to be super, really, really simple, like one mechanic type games. Find tutorials on how to build those, or maybe pick the games by finding tutorials on how to build those, and then go through that process. And then repeat that process on your own by finding another game that has another simple mechanic and trying it, and then going through searching for answers. So what I would find is a lot of people will either jump into a tutorial, follow it all the way through, not really understand what they're doing, and then just kind of give up. And you want to avoid that. You want to make sure that you, I think you go through, understand the basics, understand how to move an object, how to deal with some simple input, how to tell if a player clicked or pressed a button or something, and then figure out how to build a very, very simple game. I'm thinking like, you know, the games where you shoot a dart or a Flappy Bird. Flappy Bird, some people might seem like a really complicated game, but it's really a one mechanic game. You push a button, you add some force in the upward direction. Otherwise, your character falls down. Other than that, you move some pipes to the left. That's the entire game. So so coming up with those and then practicing those a couple times, many, many times, I'd say, until you get better at it and more comfortable with it. Now, for places to start, I assume we'll have a link down below. I also recommend my YouTube channel, just my name, Jason Wyman. 
And I try to put videos up there all the time on how to get started with Unity. And then I've got a beginner series up at game.courses slash dev chat. should take you right there. Take you to the beginner video and show you step-by-step how to make games in Unity, building out an Angry Birds clone and explaining all of the code. And it's all in C-sharp too. So it should be really simple and really familiar for everybody. There's also not very much code involved when you're building these things. Think about a an Angry Birds game, you're looking at maybe 200 lines of code for the, the base game. It's not a lot there. So it's really easy to comprehend. And it's the kind of thing that you can do in a weekend if you're interested. How advanced of a C-sharp developer do you need to be? Not at all. If you can understand the basics, you can do it. I've taught 10-year-olds how to build Flappy Bird in an hour. They grasped it and were able to reproduce it. It's really, really simple. I mean, you're thinking like, just to give an example and clarify for everybody, if you have a bird in flappy bird and you want to make it jump up you access the rigid body component which is just it's literally going to be a private field on your class and you'll call add force in the upward direction and give it a number you give it add force you give it a a direction and, and an amount that's it it'll go up flies up that's your code for it and to read the input you just check to see like if input button fire one was pressed so it's a it's an if check to say if input dot get button down and then quotes fire one rigidbody.addforce up in the upward direction. That's it. That's Flappy Bird's core mechanic. <laughs> it's two lines of code. Cool. I'd love to get my daughters when they're old enough to start programming. This could be a good place to start game programming because it's something they can see and things like that. I do want to know though, like um, in terms of hardware, like do you need like a super beefed up computer to be able to do this or can you just take any laptop and it would be okay? No, not at all to get started. If you're building just a regular game or you're getting you're building out like learning how to build games, you don't need anything powerful at all. You could use an old crappy laptop with four gigs of RAM and probably Windows 7 and be fine. I would recommend going with the best thing you can, obviously, but it doesn't really start to beat up your system until you're building these bigger AAA type games that have tons of art and tons of just giant meshes and textures. And then really it comes down to memory and compile time. But if you're building these simple games, you're building your standard mobile game, you can do that on just about any old laptop and it's going to be perfectly fine, very responsive and fast. You got to remember that the games that you're running are running on a phone. So as long as your laptop is faster than your phone, you're probably pretty good. And your laptop should generally always be faster than your phone, I hope. At least for developers. (laughs) So actually, one thing I do want to know is like just comparing game program to, I guess we're all kind of business programmers here. How do you actually plan out a game? Like, is there like a, like in the business world, there's like a, there's generally like a spec, right? That a developer will generally follow and it'll show them where to put a button where and you know what to store in the database. Like, but for game development, do, do they, do they do that? Or is it more like the programmer will just kind of make it fun and then, and then that'll be it kind of thing. Like, is there any kind of planning involved? I would say it's exactly like enterprise where some places there's a lot of planning, there's a spec and there's a, you know, it will actually have like a design spec and a whole design doc with details of how everything should work, how things should interact, how the whole system should be built, and then talk in between the code team on how the things should be put together. There's also a lot of the same stuff that you see in enterprise where there's one guy just randomly has an idea, goes in, puts it into the thing, and mm. that's it. <laughs> so it depends on the company completely. I've seen the extremes of both ends in game development and in enterprise stuff. But it's, it, when it works best, I'd say it's more like the really well-oiled enterprise systems where you have somewhat of a plan, you kind of know what you're going to do, 
you build on it, but then you adapt once you realize that you were wrong about these three things. And it's harder to, I think, be right all the time about game development because you're also figuring out what's fun, right? Not just what's going to work, get the job done, but is this also going to be fun? And sometimes you have to make those tweaks and adjustments because it works fine. It does everything the spec says, but nobody enjoys it. So what's the point? So what do you find are some of the most common mistakes for new Unity programmers for development? Okay, I've actually done a video about this. <laughs> it's kind of a thing that I, I think about a lot. The biggest ones are over-scoping and over-engineering. These are the two things, especially coming from enterprise developer friends. I have a lot of friends who are enterprise developers and they've got into game development at different stages or hobbied around or toyed with it. And they generally tend to run into those two problems where they're either come up with a game that is like the dream thing they've always wanted to build. They already know how to code giant enterprise systems. They're like, ah, I'm just going to build the big game that I want to build. Like, I don't really care about any of this other little crap. I'm just going to go straight to the big thing. I'm going to build it. And then they start laying out a little bit of a framework for it and abandon it because they never get to the actual fun game stuff. The other issue, and this is the one that hits everybody, is just over-engineering. I don't know how many times I've met or talked to other developer friends who had a plan for a game that they wanted to build. They had a system that they wanted in it that they thought was really cool. They spent six months building that system, never built their game, gave up again because you're just building a boring system that's going to get plugged into a game maybe and maybe work if it's fun. And they never got around to actually building out the fun part of the game. So I always recommend that people start with building out the fun thing, prototype it out and go through that process, especially if you're on your own and you don't already have this team and design doc and a plan. Go through, prototype it out, try it out, figure out what's going to work and don't over-engineer your stuff. Like just try really hard not to. It doesn't mean don't make it good. Make it clean, make it good. But don't don't spend more time than you need to building out patterns and systems and all kinds of other layers of abstractions that you don't need. And also don't try to cram stuff that you did in enterprise necessarily into game development. This is the the last one that I want to hit on because I did this. I jumped back and forth constantly. And one of the things I really loved in enterprise development was dependency injection. Love it, love it. I love using DI for just about everything in my C-sharp world outside of game development. So when I got back into Unity again, I was like, you know, I'm gonna see if I can figure out how to do this. And there are some frameworks out there. There's some ways to do it. And they work really well for a certain set of games, games that are built around this framework. It's a giant nightmare though, if you're trying to learn Unity or trying to figure out how to build Unity and trying to plug in the system that literally fights against most of what Unity does. Is dependency injection supposed to allow you to set up your scene, set, basically set up your world in a game or set up the, the game and the, the systems together where in Unity you have a scene file. It's essentially that. It's a lot like an XML version of a dependency injection file. It's got all of the scene data and all that stuff, and it's going to recreate it as soon as you load the scene. So you're already getting a lot of those benefits there. And the engine really just kind of fights against you if you try to use these other frameworks because you can't use the built-in editor and inspector stuff with all these dependency injection frameworks because the objects just don't exist. Normally, you put them into these scenes or levels. You can see them there. You can work with them, interact with them, and it kind of replaces it. So those are the biggest things. Sorry, they were kind of long, but... So the KISS principle still applies for game development. Without a doubt. Keep it simple. Yep, keep it simple. Keep it super, super simple, too. So I think you also have some videos on useful patterns for game development. What are some of those? I'd say the the most common pattern that you're going to run across is just 
state pattern. State machines are number one in game development. They're really, really popular and you'll use them in multiple places, not just for like AI. You use the state machine to control AI's combat, whether it's chasing somebody going out, coming back. But you also use it for animation controls. Like if you want to control how the animations are done, it's actually a built-in visual state machine that controls that. Use the mechanism system in Unity. And sometimes people even try to code games through there. I wouldn't recommend coding your gameplay logic through there. But there are also some visual scripting systems that allow you to do visual state machine building in Unity, like uh, Bolt and Playmaker, That for people that don't want to do code. The state machines, huge one. There are some others. I don't know that... I would jump into any of them as like in every project. Like you'll see a factory pattern in a lot. You'll see decorator stuff everywhere. One thing that you're going to see a ton of that you're going to hate when you jump into Unity though is uh, singletons because almost every example you find is going to have global static singleton instances that are available that are used for something. And a lot of the time it's the best option still as, as bad as it is, like as much as I I hate the word, (laughs) and I know a lot of people do. A lot of the time, it's still the best option because you really, in this case, you've got to remember that you're in that sandbox where you have one instance of this application, never more than one on the device. It's the only thing running on the device, and it's you just need to access that point of memory and do something. And you could work around it, you could build around it, but you're going to overcomplicate things, lose performance, and really not get the benefit that you get when you're building out like a, a web interface or an enterprise app where a singleton is probably going to screw you long-term. And you can still mess up really bad with them. Just expect to see them and don't try to fight it off when you're starting, right? Deal with it later. <laughs> and for those listeners that aren't familiar with some of these patterns, you know, a singleton would be something where there's a class where you can only create one instance of that class. And if you go to try to create another one, it's either going to throw out an error or just give you back the original class that was created. So, Right. And, a, yeah, and no, an example no. of that would be like a player. You may end up with, if it's a game where you only have a single player, you may end up with a player singleton instance. And you'll see that in a lot of the videos and tutorials and guides that you find where you'll access the player with like player.instance.something and tell it to do something. Usually that interface will be relatively small, but that's the pattern that you'll see. Or it'd be like an audio manager.instance.play and you're playing this type of clip because you don't want to... The audio manager is always the same thing. It's never getting swapped out. And you're always calling it the same way. It's kind of you've had experience both in enterprise and in games. What did you what did you find you liked about being an employee in both of those realms, and and how how did they differ? What what kind of made you move back and forth between them whenever you did? Oh, that's a really good question. So I found that with enterprise stuff, I could have a lot of fun solving problems. I could find problems and figure out the code for them, figure out how to solve it, and just get a lot of joy out of that. But nobody else cared. Right? Like outside of my manager, like nobody cared. And even my manager didn't really care most of the time, right? It was a tiny portion of their stuff. So it was always relatively low impact. Like I could maybe excite a hundred people in the organization for a day that I added this new thing that they wanted. They don't care tomorrow. Right? And I, and if I tell my wife or my kids or anybody else, they're like, oh, I don't even know what any of those words mean. Like I don't know any of these acronyms or what any of this nonsense is. So I didn't get the same excitement and joy that I would out of building games. So when I, whenever I would go to Enterprise, I would always be drawn back to game development just because it's a lot more fun, for me at least, being able to show these things to people and share them with people and have like my wife be like, oh, that's really cool. Or kids say, oh, that's fun for once. You know, usually they're like, dad, your game's terrible. 
Uh, one time I built a little baseball simulator in VR and my wife just kept playing it and it was the greatest day of my life. You know, like as my wife playing this VR game, she was just supposed to test it and now she's having fun with it. <laughs> so it's that kind of thing. Like getting people excited and seeing them enjoy the thing that you built is a, a lot of fun. And it's the kind of thing that I can get excited about and just want to go home and work on later. I've never really come home on very rare occasions have I come home from an enterprise job and said, I really want to just finish this thing up. I want to, I want to work on it and just work on the project through the night because I was excited about it. Games, it happens all the time, right? So it's just like this thing, I really want to do it. I want to see it in action. I want to see it happen. So it, it's a big motivator. Now, the thing that pushes me back out of games every now and then is uh, just schedules, timelines, that kind of stuff. Like with enterprise, it's very, very relaxed compared Game development is constant. There's always stuff going on and you're constantly pushing forward and making things. And it can get exhausting a little while if you're not super in love with the projects or super interested into it. So every now and then I'd get drawn away by uh, money and a little bit of burnout and go try enterprise stuff for a while. And then I'd switch back. It's like a recovery period. Kind of, yeah. It's like a, like a break, but it is also like a good eye opener too because it really like widens you to seeing patterns and remembering that there are other ways to solve things and to kind of shake stuff up a bit. Hey folks, one of the things that I find that really makes a difference for people being happy in their job is working in a place that makes a difference. And there's a terrific company out there that's looking to hire full stack developer just like you. And that's Faith Life. Their average tenure is five years. I mean, five years, that's forever in developer years. Usually I see people changing jobs every one to two years. People are sticking around because they're great. They have a great values-based culture and they are hiring developers in the United States. They're looking for full-stack developers who can do C-sharp or JavaScript on the back end and React on the front end. Go check them out at devchat.tv slash faithlife. That's devchat.tv slash faithlife. We move on to picks. So the audience doesn't know that before we actually started recording, we were talking to Jason about some colored lights that he has in his background. And we started talking about Christmas lights and things like that as well. And so my picks since the holiday season is coming up is a place that I actually bought my Christmas lights. And it's it has controllers and lights and all that kind of things that you can set up to have animated trees or scenes in your front yard or on your house. So it's a site called Holiday Coro put the link in that. But if anybody wants to get into programming Christmas lights, even I set them up for holiday for other holidays. So Halloween, I'll make everything like orange and spooky and things like that. So if you want to get into that, check out this website where I got my lights. All right, Caleb, what's your pick? So this episode has actually given me multiple picks, but you know, I need to save some for later. So I'm actually going to do one that that goes along with the 3D modeling. There is a company called TurboSquid that's based out of New Orleans. I've actually interviewed with them previously, you know, years, several years back. But they're they're a big player in in this space. And I actually think I, I've added a link to some of their free FBX files. But they're a good company and, and got a lot of good stuff. So that's my pick for this week. Oh, that's cool. Because yeah, I, I know about TurboSquid because I've done some 3D animation and things like that. I didn't know they were out of New Orleans. Cool. Yeah, yeah. All right. Why? What's your pick? Okay, so I kind of had a bit of trouble thinking up a pick this week, but um, and I'm not sure if I've actually already done it, but 
for this particular one, but I have kind of a habit of forgetting my keys and just wallets like all the time. Like it's not as much of a problem like whilst I've been working from home, but there's so many mornings where I'm just kind of running around the house going, oh my God, where did I put my keys? I can't get to work kind of thing. So then I bought these things called like a tile and I've kind of, they're like these little keychain things where you can put them into everything. You can put them into your keys and, and your wallet and things like that. And then you got to, phone app where if you when you've lost your key you can just kind of i guess go into the phone app and then figure out uh, and then pick the tile that you want and it starts beeping so it's it saved me a, a few times from not being able to find my stuff so yeah i've well, actually helped somebody find their keys with a tile before i didn't have a tile myself but i found some keys uh, outside where i worked and it had a little, little tile thing on it and what's that for and so i looked it up and then i was like okay does this thing send out its own little signal or whatever so i did find out that you had to install the app on your phone and then it would report the location to whoever owned the keys and yeah next day they, they came and picked up the keys so it yeah, definitely I think does work can... I think if you've got the tile, you can also press the button on the tile and it also rings the phone. So some, a few times I've actually forgotten where my phone was. Um, and yeah, then, if, you're in, uh, if you're in range, but this person was gone, they weren't anywhere around. Oh, so, right, right. So it, it, it had to pick up somebody's phone that had the app installed in order to re- report the location. So yeah, but yeah. that was still cool. Mm. All right, Joel. Yeah, so you got. my pick was recreational. I had a friend come up from Austin, Texas to get out of the heat down there. Apparently, this was, I guess, uh, every day in August hit 100 or above. So he was happy to get away and come on up and visit me. And we went to the Chiquamagon National Forest in Wisconsin, over here next door to Minnesota. And that is this beautiful one million acre national forest that has a couple hundred miles of mountain bike and gravel trails winding through it. And if you're a mountain biker, it is just a joy to ride. It's just like, seems like limitless trails. You know, when you're in town, there might be like a couple hundred acre place and you'll have the weavy trails that kind of turn back on themselves. This feels like you're just going straight line for miles and miles, which you actually are. So we did three days of mountain biking up there and man, it was great just to be away out in the woods Stayed in a little cabin by some lakes out there in, in Cable, Wisconsin, and really had a great time with it. Cool, cool. Sounds fun. Yeah. yeah. All right, Jason, have you came up with something you want to let our listeners know about? Sure, I got two, actually. After listening to your guys, I got really inspired. So the first was my buddy Jason's BitGym 3D site. Just like Turbo Squid, he's got a ton of really great art and a lot of free and cheap stuff, and he even has like an unlimited plan on there. I use this stuff all the time, and I always tell people to use it, so... I'm telling people what to use. I would, I highly recommend it. It's just bitgem3d.com. I use this stuff too all the time. I, I really love it. I just love the art style. It's, it's really cool and fun and colorful. And the other thing I wanted to share was just because I spent all day yesterday or most of the day yesterday and a lot of this morning installing a shelf from rcgdesigns.com that I freaking love. It's amazing. And it's the coolest thing I, I've ever bought and put up. So I wanted to share that too. Just say, go check it out. He builds these cool, like, if you're into weird steampunky type stuff with weird custom gauges and crap, like, like I am, um, it's really neat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we saw yourself at the start. It looks really cool. Uh, one of the gauges even has a, is an FPS counter and our frames per second and they're all customized and stuff. It's, yeah, it's really neat. <laughs> sweet, sweet. Well, uh, thanks for your time today, Jason. I, I hope that we, we've got some people uh, excited about using Unity 3D and maybe even some future rich game developers. That'd be great. 
You can they, they can send the commission straight to the show. That'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> or if anybody wants to reach out to the show, they can get to touch with me on Twitter. I am at .net superhero. And if they want to get out to you, Jason, how can they get in touch? Just at my site, game.courses. Weird domain name, but it's just game.courses. And I've got my beginner stuff on there, courses and email. You can just email me directly on there. It's usually the best way to get a hold of me. Or my name is Jason Wyman on YouTube. W-E-I-M-A-N-N. Cool. Thanks, everybody. I think it was a great show. Yeah. Everybody stay safe. Yeah. You too, Caleb. Yeah, don't don't <laughs> get right. hit by a hurricane. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We'll catch everybody on the next episode of Adventures in.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.